Again, I want to thank you all for being here today. Uh, you could think of 10,000 reasons probably to stay at home and stay warm. Uh, but when God's people come together, there's mighty power in prayer, mighty power in fellowship and being together. So I uh, appreciate that. Let's pray before we get into the word. Father, I thank you for your love, for your grace, for your loving kindness. I thank you that you, uh, you have a kingdom that cannot be diminished and that your kingdom program is rolling out through this world. Uh, despite what it might look like, Father, you are working all things after the counsel of your own will. And from a human perspective, Lord, sometimes we look at things and we, we can't make sense out of them. But Father, you do, and you know where it's going. And in that confidence, we're able to be able to be here and meet here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think you would all agree that these are times of change. Anyone disagree? Uh, things are spiraling in different directions, different things are going on, and those that study such things uh, have said people now experience the same quantity of significant generational events or change that used to occur over a 30-year period of time. Okay, the amount of change and things that would happen over a 30-year period of time every 18 months now. That's a big difference. And for those of us who don't like change, these are trying times. Uh, if, if all of that that would happen normally in 30 years happens in 18 months, uh, it's no wonder people are on edge. Uh, times of difficulty, people are in conflict, people are uh, sometimes very scared about what the future will bring. Uh, the most predictable thing about life today is that our culture will change at a rate that is hard to keep up with, no matter who you are, even if you like change. And we've been looking at some of the things, hopefully, to stabilize us a little bit as we go through times of change. Uh, you have that whole list of corona uh, things to be focusing on, our to-do list. And we're going to be looking at number 10 again, uh, our countenance, uh, in a different type of way uh, because it is so important in times of difficulty, in times of uncertainty, that the Church of Jesus Christ uh, puts out a constant tone, that there is an anchor, there is a place to hold on to, and that we don't, uh, we're not at the mercy of an election. We're not at the mercy of other nations. We're not at the mercy of the economy. Uh, we are at the mercy of God. And there isn't a better place for the church to be. And to be able to communicate that and show that through our countenance, through our actions, is a huge thing. Uh, we looked at the blessing that Aaron had been given a couple weeks ago, that he was to give to other people and saying, that is the blessing that has been given to us to give to other people. Uh, we looked in Romans chapter 12 last week with our little 1812 Overture Cannon Fire uh, about the greatness of the church, what the church looks like when it's doing everything it's supposed to be doing and how wonderful that that is. Uh, and that we are, if it's at all possible, live at peace with all people. Have the banner of Jesus Christ high and lifted up as the number one thing that we're supposed to be focusing on. And in doing that, we concluded with a couple peacekeeping imperatives. One was that when it comes to vengeance, uh, stop the volley. Don't keep the cannon fire going. Uh, but also pass that hammer to the one who is uh, 
Vengeance belongs to him and him alone, being Jesus Christ. To not take things into our own hands. And then finally, by doing that, we play a medicinal role in the lives of other people, where those burning coals would go on their heads. Uh, hopefully, over time, even the thickest skull would get burnt through by those hot coals to bring them to a place of knowing Jesus Christ and potentially coming to him. To this week, we're going to continue that same theme, and it's a little bit of a flashback. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 not too long ago, and in that we looked at Moses, and Moses, how his face shone after being in God's presence, being in the glory of God with him. It, it made a difference in him. So we're going to look at that for a moment uh, and bounce off of that, as then we're going to look in a portion of Scripture um, that kind of carries that same theme along. But prior to the time, in Exodus 32 is the Old Testament place where this took, uh, the account took place. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians 3, it, it's referred to. Prior to this time of Moses going up on the mountain, his credentials were suspect from time to time. In other words, people were asking him, how do we know that God has really spoken through you? How, how can we know that we can trust you, that what you're saying really represents what God has? So if you're filling in your blanks, the first thing you can put in there, Moses had his credentials, his credentials questioned on several occasions. Uh, then the meeting with God. And I know some of you might like hiking, and if you see a mountain, it would be fun to go hiking up the mountain. But one that's covered in darkness with thunders and lightning and the earth quaking and the glory of God there might deter you a little bit. But that's where Moses went. He went up to this mountain that was such a holy situation that it said even if a beast were to touch it, it should be thrust through with a spear. This was a holy encounter, meeting with God. A month and a half on the mountain with the glory of God. Now, picture that yourself. You've had probably a devotional time, if you've known the Lord for some time, where you feel like God was closer than he normally is. You just, it was a sweet time of fellowship with you and the Lord. Could you imagine a month and a half with the glory of God in his presence? You can't leave that the same way. You can't walk away looking, feeling, acting the same way again uh, after a month and a half of time. The principle is sustained time with God leaves a mark. It caused Moses' face to shine. And we said a couple weeks ago, this wasn't just a little bit of a glow. This was like laser beams, the scriptures say in the Hebrew language, that were pointing out, you know, at you. When he would look at you, it would be flashes and beams of light at you. And it was such a thing that it was said that the children of Israel could not look at him. Now, as time went on, that started to fade away. Uh, but Moses, what he did in doing this um, is, is put that mask on to stop frightening everybody, to stop scaring people uh, so that they would be, uh, they knew he was with God. And if Moses was all about himself, you know, as I had said back then, I would have left the mask off and just been like Mr. Power Guy, uh, going around with all this power and looking at people and it's like, yeah, I was with the Lord. Can't you tell? Can't you see? And that had been all about me. And Moses wasn't like that at all. Um, at that time, from that time on, no one questioned whether Moses really was hearing from the Lord. And I don't see how you could. 
because the mark was in his countenance. Uh, an old-time um, commentator by the name of Benson said this, at this time of his being in the mount, he heard only the same he had heard before, but he saw more of the glory of God, which having with open face beheld, he was in some, some measure changed into that same image. This was a great honor done to Moses, that the people might never again question his mission or think or speak lightly of him. He carried his credentials in his very countenance. Some think as long as he lived, he retained some remainders of this glory, which perhaps contributed to the vigor of his old age. And the scriptures tell us that his eye did not wax dim, which has seen God, nor the face wrinkle, which has shone with his glory. To think that Moses retained some of that, and that's why in his older age, he didn't, he didn't show the signs of aging. His eyes never dimmed. And, and they say perhaps that's because he had seen the glory of God. The credentials that Moses carried in his face caused the people to never question again that God was speaking through him. And that's kind of the first encouragement for us this morning as we want to impact our world is to spend time with the Lord and our countenance and our face will even show it as we go to other people that we have been with the Lord. You know, until the coronavirus thing, um, I never really appreciated what it meant for, for Moses to wear a mask all the time. Uh, he did it on purpose. The governor didn't say you must wear a mask to, show, to conceal the glory of God so you don't scare people. He did this on his own. So the first lesson is that this mask wearing by Moses was a very sacrificial kind of thing. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he wore his mask all the time except when he went back to the presence of the Lord and then he would take the mask off. Now, remember, he's not in a 40-degree church service like we are uh, that's nice and cold and a mask might help keep you warm. It was a very hot area where the desert-type world that he was in would radiate heat up at him. The sun would be shining down, yet he wore the mask all the time out of kindness and consideration for others. It didn't bother him that the glory of God was shining from his face. He, you know, that, that was fine. It was for other people that he chose to wear that. So that's a sacrificial lesson. Uh, unless meeting with the Lord, the mask stayed on. But in his kindness and consideration for other people, he wore it. The second lesson that you take from, from Moses and his countenance is one of humility. One of humility. Always pointing to God and not to himself. And that's why he kept the mask on. See, humility is not, as some people would think, uh, down-talking self, uh, down-talking, belittling yourself. You hear some people as you're around them may say things like, I am no good. I don't have anything to offer. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. I don't deserve everything. Why would God ever use me? I have no talents. I have nothing to offer him. Uh, it's kind of like that uh, little song that you might know. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. What am I going to do? Eat worms. Eat worms. 
That's not humility. In fact, uh, that really, people don't ever leave a presence of somebody like that thinking, oh my goodness, that was so refreshing. Uh, because really, all they did in all of that was still talk about themselves, even though they were belittling themselves. C.S. Lewis said this, those who talk negatively about themselves are still talking about themselves instead of pointing to God. So that, that is not the kind of humility. And it's kind of interesting that Moses records that Moses was the most humble man in the whole world. Um, that's not an easy thing to write other, other than that God is telling him what to write and to write it. But you think about it, that the God of all creation looks down and says there is no one more humble on the face of the earth at this moment than Moses is. And Moses wasn't belittling himself, but there was a certain humility where he wanted all of the glory that was shining to be to God and God alone and not to himself. The countenance is enhanced of anyone who truly does what they do, not with one eye in the mirror to see how they look, but genuinely for the care and love of other people. And when someone like that is in your presence and you know that they genuinely love you, they genuinely care about you, and they're not concerned about anything for themselves, God is glorified. God in our countenance of humility is glorified. Again, humility is not thinking I'm better than you or I'm worse than you, but rather this. How can I help another child of Adam see a savior who is madly in love with them the same way that I have come to know him. To point people to God, so point them to Jesus Christ so that they may come to know him the way that you have known them. Uh, back in one of the churches I was at as a child, we had an interim pastor. He was in his 90s, 90s, still preaching the word of God. And he would get up in the pulpit and he would be, uh, at, like a gymnast up there. And he would, his phrase that I can still remember him saying comes from Galatians 2.20, not I, but Christ. And he'd get up there and he'd be screaming, not I, but Christ, and start beating on his chest, beating on his chest. He's, I'm 90 some years old. And as long as I have breath here, not I, but Christ, not I, but Christ. And that, I can remember that. Because in his humility, he knew here on earth, it's not about him. It never has been, it never would be, never should be. It's about him. The life that I live here, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved him, loves me and gave himself for me. Not I, but Christ. I'm just about to turn 59. Beat my chest a few times, I start coughing. You know, this, this guy was just preserved by the Lord and he, that was his message that I can remember so clearly. Not I, but Christ. That is a lesson that we can take from Moses. As we think about change, does anybody like to see our country change? Good way? Do you like to see your community change in a good way? How's that happen? How do we use our countenance? How can we use our own influence, and not influence like personal, but our influence for the cause of Christ? How, how do we see change happen? Well, I was reading this week, and I'd like you to do a little bit of, uh, pretend you're the counselor here. And I want to describe the situation at this particular congregation. There's a leadership family there. And in this leadership family, there was some definite dysfunctions going on. The oldest brother was a convicted murderer 
with anger issues, okay? Seems that he's honestly been working on his anger now and now only occasionally breaks things rather than people, okay? That's the oldest brother. Got a picture of him. The sister, a little different. She's a racist. Doesn't fully support the older brother at all because she's prejudiced against the interracial marriage of the older brother. Bitter to the point of dragging the younger brother into this feud and getting him on her side so that the younger brother is drawn into the conflict. Then she publicly denounces him in front of the whole congregation. Not a good situation. The congregation is beginning to split and to fracture. To make matters worse, the younger brother gets in on this prejudice and joins her in that, but he takes things a step worse. He starts while the older brother is away on business, starts to lead the congregation in heretical, even cultic kind of things, even to the point of taking in offerings so that the church can better pursue the cultic practices that he's beginning to lead them in. So what do you do? You're the counselor. How can those kind of congregational leadership situations ever change? Would it help if I told you that their names maybe? Moses, Miriam, and Aaron? Moses the murderer? Doesn't break people, but he sure can smash some commandments real hard. Break them to pieces, man of anger. Miriam denounced Moses' marriage, his interracial marriage. Aaron, while Moses is away on business, takes the whole congregation and leads them into idolatry. And takes that calf and says, here's the God that brought you out of Egypt. Take a look, everybody. See it? It's awesome. What made a difference? How do you take people like that and change them and get them to be the people that can follow and lead things as far as the way God would want them to be? Well, enter the glory of God. When people spend time with God, things change. Their hearts change. A self-confessed murderer, a sorcerer, a, racial, a racially prejudiced troublemaker, when the glory of God touches them, they change. They change on the inside to, to the outside. One of the ways that change happens, and you can put this in your notes, uh, change happens by a moving of the Spirit, empowered, number one, by prayer. Empowered by prayer. People don't change. Governments don't change, countries don't change without prayer. Through the proclamation of repentance for forgiveness by the cross. That is how people change. When people pray, when the message of the gospel goes out, when Jesus is lifted up, when the cross becomes real to people, change happens. And I challenge all of us to really let that sink in. Because we're at a time where people are convinced that change comes through the next president of the United States. That is the only hope for America. And if that person gets in, things are gonna go horribly wrong. 
And if this person gets in, they'll still go horribly wrong. Let me say, if you believe that change happens through prayer and the power of the gospel, and if you believe that is the only way to change a country, I challenge you to pray like you've never prayed before. There are a lot of people who are very politically active right now. And they're in conversations. And, and if you take the quantity of time that they're spending on conversations and energy into the political process, I wonder if you took a step back and said, have you spent an equal amount of time praying? Have you really? And all the things you're saying and thinking, do you really believe this country would change through a political process? Do you really believe racism, lust, abortion, and all these things are going to change and become different because a law gets passed or a law gets rescinded? That might kind of control things, but that doesn't change a heart. If we are God's people and we believe that change happens through prayer or moving of the Holy Spirit, we should have an inordinate amount of our time dedicated to prayer. And, and if we get involved in those other things, they're like the tail. They're not the, the main thing. After we're done praying as much as we think we need to, when we're done with that, then if there's something else that maybe gets, gets added onto it, yes, but if I ask any of you, do you believe that you've prayed enough for our country? Do you believe that you've prayed enough for the people of our community? I don't think there's anybody who says, yeah, I've prayed all that I could pray. If we believe, and I do, that change only happens when people see God in his glory, when they see him high and lifted up, they're not going to be in petty squabbles. They're not going to be running out to a protest. And I'm not saying it's ever wrong to go to a protest. But if that's your first line, if that's the way you think you're going to change America, you are not. You're going to change it when you're on your knees, when you're praying to him, and you're begging for his glory to be seen by the people around us. If God's people did that to the extent we bicker and, and fight over all the other things and the, all that other stuff that pulls us away, I think we'd see a change in the church. I think we'd see a change in our country. And I don't know if we'd have another revival, but when I study the Great Awakenings, that's how they happened. People saw a glimpse of the glory of God and were, were um, captivated or, or, or um, undone, I should say, by their own sin. And they knew they needed a savior. And things changed. And at one point, more, more money came into the churches at the Great Awakening than the whole government collected in taxes. Because people were just drawn to God and they were in repentance and, and things had changed. Now, I didn't plan on saying all that, but that just kind of came out because I just see so much um, division happening and, and people getting the wrong idea about what's going to change the world around us. So New Testament scripture that kind of reminds me a little bit of what Moses and coming into God's glory is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses, starting in verse 14. It says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. I love that phrase, Christ always leads us in triumphal procession always 
even though it may not seem like it. In Christ, we are always led into victory. Now, that phrase can mean two separate things, and commentators kind of divide themselves. Uh, both of them are splendid options. In one option, this idea of causing us uh, or leading us in triumphal procession, it's a picture of a Roman general after a conquest was made. And there was a great pomp and circumstance of a parade that would go through the streets. And the general, as he was being led through the triumphal procession, would have a slave that would kind of hold a crown over top of his head, figurative of the great victory that had just been won. And this would take place, and then after that would come the spoils of war. And then the great army of the general would follow behind. And they would yell as they went through the streets, triumph, triumph, triumph. So that's the picture that's being used here in Corinthians, is that Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession. So the one view by a lot of commentators is that Jesus leads us where the trophies of grace that in everything he's leading us and we are the trophies of his grace and that is the procession that's being led along and we're part of it. Others see it a little different and almost a, a, a more wonderful picture or an impossible way of looking at it is that God is the great emperor and he has said, you know what, I am going to let you be the general the victorious general, and you lead the triumphal procession because I'm allowing that to happen. So God's saying, you know what, each individual believer, you are the front of the triumphal procession. I will lead you through it, but you are the one who is the conquering, I'll say hero, just because that's the phrase that we use all the time. You are the one that has gotten victory on my coattails as the emperor or as the king of kings and you will be the one who gets to go through in triumphal procession. No matter how you look at it, it's an honor to be part of what God has said in every situation, I will lead you in a triumph. And in that, it says that we are the fragrance, the fragrance of, uh, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's the countenance. That in every situation, the knowledge of God should be the trail that we leave behind. That is the fragrance. In a Roman triumph, as part of one of these parades, uh, garlands and flowers were scattered all over as a sweet odor. And incense bearers would walk along so that if one of these parades was going on, this procession, you could smell it anywhere around. Because even in the temples uh, that they would go to as part of this, the pagan temples, they would put all kinds of incense and flowers and things around. So when the triumphal procession was taking place, there was an aroma, there was a fragrance that was scattered all over the place. So as we're going in the triumphal percent, uh, procession, following Jesus Christ through this, that our fragrance of the knowledge of God is what should be scattered around. The knowledge of God here is the fragrance. And take note of that. So as they would go through the whole situation that they were going through, the whole parade, uh, people smelled it. They knew it. Verse 15 goes on to say, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The shift, there's a little shift in the imagery here. 
And the aroma changes, and the actual Greek word that's being used here is a different kind of fragrance than is used before that. This aroma here is a sweet savor, and it's used of the altar of incense. If you remember our study on the tabernacle, it's that, that fragrance that goes up from the altar to God. So now, before, the, the fragrance was the knowledge of God. Now, it's us, as the image shifts, that you personally are the aroma that just doesn't go out as a fragrance to the world. It goes as an aroma up to God Almighty. So the way that we live, the countenance that we have as we go through this life, supposed to be giving the knowledge of God as we go on this triumphal uh, processional, but it's also a sweet sacrifice that goes up to God. Have you ever walked into a house and smelled chocolate chip cookies baking? You know it as soon as you walk in. And that aroma is specific and, and wonderful. And as you smell it, you're like, captivated by it at least i am i don't know about you some of you may not be into that kind of thing but i think it's awesome that's the picture here that there's a distinct wonderful aroma that as it's an aroma to god we pull people they they, they see him in, in us um kind of not quite as a heartwarming i guess as chocolate chip cookies but i remember going to my grandmother's house my grandmother's house had a very unique fragrance about it. Um, at one point, you know, we always bought her the same kind of perfume every year called Evening in Paris. Uh, it was whatever was cheap at the big store and she smelled like Evening in Paris all the time because whenever we come she put on the perfume. But a little bit stronger than that, my grandmother loved Bengay and she used Bengay all the time. And my grandmother was a hugger and she's one who wanted to be with you. And we always knew when one of the kids was at grandma's house, because when you left grandma's house, you smelled like grandma. You just took it with you. And then they come and, oh, I can see you're at grandma's house. That's how it is with God. That's how it ought to be. Time with God, the fragrance that we give off, the aroma that we offer up to him. People should know that this person has spent time with God. I can smell it on them. They just exude the peace of God. They exude the, the, the relationship and the security. And when the rest of the world seems like they've lost their mind, this person hasn't. There's something about their countenance. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's kind of interesting there. Some people say, how could a loving God ever send anybody to hell? But in that verse, when it says those uh, who are being saved, that's a passive word there. It means people who are doing nothing to earn it are being saved. But when it says people are perishing, that's an active tense in that verb. In other words, saying these people are perishing by their own actions. So the ones that are being saved are doing nothing. God's doing it all. But the ones who are rejecting him, they're perishing because of their own decisions. And in fact, God never really sends anyone to hell. They send themselves by rejecting him, by pursuing a whole different course. And that's kind of just a sidelight. Uh, verse 16 says, to one, we are, to, we are a fragrance 
from death to death. That doesn't sound good. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. The same aroma that is being given off, to some, it's death to death. In other words, the scriptures say in, in 1 Peter that the gospel, to some, is a stumbling block. To some, it's a rock of offense. And to those people, the aroma we're giving off really isn't, isn't good for them because they're rejecting it. They're not having any part of it. And for them, it's death to death. But to those who have a sensitive heart, to those who want to know the truth, it's an aroma of life to life. God is drawing them and they see God. Uh, we see in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Thinking about that, I hope you are overwhelmed to think that your job is to bring the fragrance of Christ to the world, returning back to God, everything you do, every place you go, every person that you meet. Because if you're like me, you know that sometimes your fragrance stinks more than it points to God. We know that we say things, we don't do things the way we ought to. And I think 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 2.16b kind of um, predicts or knows where that's going to go. Because what Paul says here, who is sufficient for these things? The these things there are being that kind of aroma, being that kind of fragrance. Who is sufficient to do that? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Literally, that word order is a little different in Greek there. It says, and for these things, focusing on the job, the, the task of being that kind of a fragrance in the world, who sufficient? Who is sufficient to do that? Who in their own strength could ever go and represent the glory of God to the world around them? We just don't have it in us. And if you go a little bit further into the next chapter, you're going to see that the answer to that question is found in chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We should have an overwhelming sense of insufficiency and inadequacy to represent the Lord of the universe in the way that we live. But when we know Christ in us, we'll do the shining. Time spent with God will be the thing that rubs off on us. That sufficiency becomes his and not ours alone. To be clear, Moses didn't save anybody, and neither can we. But we can spend time with God. We can fill that blank, and we can spend time with God. Let his aroma stay with us. In a time of unprecedented change, our job description remains constant and secure. The way the economy is today, many people have lost their jobs. And you know, in the economy of Christ, when it comes to what he has for us to do, our job is secure. Our job description is the same as it was as when Jesus Christ walked on the earth. Be salt, be light, 
be a fragrance. We are salt. He is the Savior. When it comes to God and his kingdom, there is 100% employment rate. The difficulty is getting everyone to show up for work. Because there are many of us who just pull back and get pulled into other things, get sidetracked, get involved in discussions and arguments and fights and politics and things. You know what? We're children of the kingdom. The kingdom should be the primary thing that, that dominates our conversation. The thing that we, we uh, put out there more than anything else. So that when people see us, they don't see, oh, well, they think this way, they think that way, and I don't agree, and I don't see it that way. You know what? You know what we agree on? We should all agree on? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the answer for the world. And if we keep that our focus, the one thing I know we agree on, there is unity. But when we detract from lifting Christ up is when the other divisions and things come in and things that can be very, very ugly. And people will say, I can't believe you think that way. Well, I can't believe you think that way. And I will tell you, and I've said it before, right now in the world of politics, we've got people on two sides. And one side says, how can you be a Christian and think that way? Well, how can you be a Christian and think that way? Get off of it. Talk about Christ. Talk about the kingdom that we are citizens of. And when we lift that up, we come together in a tremendous amount of unity. And those peripherals will happen. We'll take care of them. And God is not stressed. And he's not upset. So as our countenance is shining and we are a fragrance, our job description is his kingdom and representing him. Anything else I do that detracts from that, is making this my kingdom down here. And I'm not focusing on the citizenship that is really mine overall. The salvation of the world, the future of a nation, are in his hands. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can ruin his plan. And he is capable of using anyone, even a sorcerer, murderer, racist troublemaker, who come to him in forgiveness, or in repentance for forgiveness. I just challenge all of us, as the corona thing moves on, as politics move on, as people are divided everywhere, to be children of the kingdom, to be people who lift up Christ, the one thing that we absolutely agree on, and make that the marching beat to what we go by. So that as people see us, they see Christ, they don't see factions. They don't see our opinions. They see him first and foremost. Father, we remember you through the communion table. May that, that remembrance lead us to worship, which leads us to fellowship, spending time with you. May you leave your mark on us. In Jesus' name, amen. The scriptures say, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And just, you can dip the wafer and eat that, and then I want to read another portion of scripture before you drink the cup. And for some of us, our fingers are very cold right now, so this is a very difficult job.
In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us partake together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the cross. And in our country now, it needs your cross more than ever. It needs your touch. It needs your mercy. Father, your church needs it in a way that it hasn't needed it in a, seemingly in a long time. A, a greater touch. A deeper touch. And Lord, I ask that you will use each of us as individuals to be the fragrance, to countenance you, to spend time in your word with you in fellowship so that when we leave your presence, it leaves a mark. Father, as we close our in, in song now, may you take our life as that sweet fragrance, that aroma to you that is pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>